Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Jonathan Strickland. I am the host ordinaire. My name is Lauren Vogelbaum, and I and does that make me the host extraordinaire this yeah, time? Yeah, extraordinaire. Extra, extraordinary. Yeah. Well, today we we have a topic that's both happy and sad. Uh, it's sad in that the the world lost uh, an activist and uh, and legitimately a genius in January 2013, a fellow by the name of Aaron Swartz. And you may have heard this name, and you you may even be. Uh, fairly aware of, of who he was and what he did. He's been in the news a whole bunch, and you've probably been hearing about him for years because he's done some really breakthrough work in technology. Yeah, yeah, and both from a actual technological standpoint and from a, a political standpoint, as it turns out. So we wanted to really talk about who he was, what sort of impact he's had on technology, both from a policy side and from actual like, zeros and ones side. Right, physical, yeah. And, and to kind of talk about why his his life and death matter in the world of tech. And uh, to do this, we, we wanted to kind of take an overview of his life. So uh, first, before I really dive in, I have to give major props to The Verge, which is, if you guys have never gone to The Verge, it's a fantastic Go there. It's blog. terrific. It's one of my favorite sites out there right now. It's really, really well done. And uh, a fellow by the name of Tim Carmody wrote... Uh, an exhaustive article about Swartz's life and was very thorough and very respectful. It and was, yeah, it was a really gorgeous piece of journalism, honestly. And it was, it was a very personal piece of journalism. It, it bled a few lines yeah. and, into editorial, but it was. And, and gave you a, gave you insight to what exactly. it's like being a journalist to have to cover a story that has personal implications mm-hmm. because he had, had met Swartz uh, uh, at least once. And so, you know, it's a it's a kind of an inside look to what it's like mm-hmm. being a journalist and covering a story like this. And also, he's very good at breaking down the myths because they, you know, Aaron Swartz was sort of a legendary mythical figure in many ways. Yeah, yeah. the kind of person whose whose contributions were huge, and they got bigger depending upon who was telling the story <laughs> and how lo- how many times they told it. Sure, the the same way that say Steve Jobs. Oh, has sure. A lot of that's a good good uh, example. Although we should also add, Swartz was was tragically very young uh, when he uh, when he committed suicide. Only twenty six years old. Twenty six. Yeah. So uh, so going back to his childhood, he was born in Chicago in nineteen eighty six. Uh, his father, Robert Swartz, founded a software company, which was called Mark Williams, which is actually named after uh, Aaron's grandfather. Aww, uh-huh. And uh, and Mark Williams, uh, the company, was all about creating a clone of the Unix operating system and also CE compilers, C language compilers, and debuggers for IBM PCs. And that's... That's a term that brings me back because I remember when uh, when computers were either called Apple or IBM compatible. Right. Uh, yes. Or, you know, eventually. You kind know, of specificity doesn't really exist yeah. anymore. Yeah. No, IBM compatible became a term. Like I was referring to PCs as IBM compatibles long after that was appropriate <laughs> because sometimes things stick with you. But anyway, uh, Robert Swartz would eventually become an intellectual property consultant for MIT's Media Lab. And intellectual property was something that Aaron became very interested in and very passionate about. Yeah. Uh, and the idea of, is 
information property? Does it belong to one person or one entity in the case of, say, a corporation or organization? Or does it belong to the world? Mm -hmm. Should it belong to the world? And this is a philosophical debate that uh, a lot of people have had. And I think most people fall somewhere in the spectrum of gray. Sure. Well, you know, it's we we all want to, especially those of us who work in the media, want to be paid for our ideas. Sure. Uh, because that's the only thing that we produce. But at the same time, yeah, you know, if, if someone wants to learn something, I, I'm certainly not going to say like, no, no, give me money first. If, you know, if, for example, if they need that money to eat, I would right. rather them know things and eat. Yes, yes. And so Aaron kind of, we'll get into it, but Aaron kind of developed uh, an idealistic philosophy that was very much in the realm of information wants to be free. Right, that right. I, that sort of idea that, that, that data needs to be out there for people to make use of it and to make lives better. He called it a moral imperative. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that, that kind of gives you a quick philosophical overview, but you know, we don't want to jump ahead too far. Right, right. Uh, Tim's work in The Verge, there was one little piece of information that I thought was adorable, which is that when Aaron was eight years old, uh, keep in mind now, this is early days, okay, so 1986 plus eight, that means in, 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 in wait, I got 19, four. <laughs> uh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Liberal arts education has paid off, people. 1994, when the World Wide Web was really just two years old, um, he was actually going on Usenet, which it's not the same thing as World Wide Web, so don't write me. But he was going on Usenet, which was a, a, a news group uh, mm-hmm. uh, database, essentially kind of like a, a, a network database, where you could go and have discussions about different topics. And apparently, Early when he was board. Yeah. exactly uh, when he was eight, <laughs> he, he went onto Usenet, and his first post was to a news group dedicated to Beekman's World. Yes, which is kind of awesome. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and he was also a big fan of the Star Wars movies, which I think is phenomenal because he was born three years after the last one came out, Return of the Jedi. As we have discussed before, you're old. Sorry. Yeah, well, you I, know, I, I saw Return of the Jedi in the theater when it was released. And uh, man, I sure hope that one day Lucas comes out with uh, movies that really explain how Anakin became Darth Vader. Yeah, wouldn't that be – that would be so great. That would be fantastic. I'd I love all, a follow-up to I all really of that. wish that those movies existed. <laughs> Just like I hope one day they make a sequel to Highlander. Or um, The Matrix. Or The Matrix. These are, yeah, so many movies that I wish there were sequels to that I'm not actively denying uh, <laughs> exist. Um, it's exhausting being me, Gal, really. But anyway, he was also fans of other things. Like I went and visited his blog uh, in preparation for this podcast, and and he had a way of taking pop culture and – Applying various uh, uh, thought experiments to it right. that was engaging and enlightening and funny. He has a great one, and the final one, sadly, uh, about um, the Dark Knight. Uh, yeah, the most turns. recent, the 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 last in the Christopher Nolan series. Actually, it was the second one. Was it? Yeah, because it was all about the Joker. Oh, okay, it, it, it was because he was he was going back to looking at that one. It was okay. written it was written in November 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, the blog post was, uh, and it was about how the Joker applies game theory throughout the movie, and he breaks down almost scene by scene every time the Joker appears wow. and and explains which game in game theory applies to that scene. And there's like 
a dozen different wow. games that he specifically references. And he makes a case for every single one. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, I, I kind of had the same idea once or twice because I, I, I know about game theory. It's fleetingly. It's yeah, sort of- things like Prisoner's Dilemma, the trolley problem, things like that. Um, but he broke it down for every single scene. I, th- I said, I never saw the, all of those connections. Mm-hmm. So he really had that ability, too, to, to kind of look at – uh, the world around him and art and 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 entertainment. Even if you even if you don't want to call it art, if you just want to call it entertainment, he sure. was able to see the underlying thoughts that kind of maybe not consciously but guided that work. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if even if it was completely unintentional, he could mm-hmm. draw parallels, which was really kind of a, a, a an awesome thing. I really admire that quality in people. Certainly, I do not possess it, uh-huh. not to that extent anyway. Yeah. So, uh, skipping ahead of all that, I mean, that's, so, bottom line, geeky guy. Okay. <laughs> He's a geek. And, yes. and I say that with full love. I say that as a man who has a Lord of the Rings tattoo on his left arm. Okay. I love the geek. I learn things about you every day, Jonathan. You didn't know I had a tattoo of the Lord of the Rings? I don't, I don't think I did. It's right here. That's, um, can't show you. I'm wearing long sleeves today. Um, but anyway, uh, skipping ahead a little bit to uh, when he was the ripe old age of 13 years old. It's cir- circa 2000 or so. 13. He begins to work on the Info Network, which is – his idea for the Info Network was sort of like what Wikipedia became. It's the idea of this – An online encyclopedia. Yeah. A storage of knowledge that anyone can – Can add to. Mm-hmm. Add to and edit. So – Essentially the same idea as Wikipedia. It's this, you know, he saw that the internet was the, had the potential to be like the guide in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Mm-hmm. If you guys have not read the, the books, then, uh, that's okay. You go ahead and do that. We'll wait. Cause they're worth it. They are. Uh, don't, don't watch the, the movie. Uh, but you can watch the BBC television series you or can, listen to the radio show. You can watch the movie. Alan Rickman was excellent in that film. That movie was so bad. Martin Freeman was excellent in that film. We're, don't make me... I, the performances I will, were fine. The script was terrible. I am from the internet. I will fight you about Martin Freeman. No, no, no. no. I, you're not going to get any argument on me. I mean, Freeman okay. was the best thing about the okay. nap I took during The Hobbit. Um, so anyway, uh, the Info Network, he's, he's working on this, this project, and uh, the work gets him some attention. He actually becomes a finalist in the second Ars Digita Prize. And uh, as a finalist... Um, you know, keep in mind, he's 13 years old. He's, he's competing, not necessarily competing, but he's, he's in the he's same. He's up against. Yeah. He's um, in the bracket. Bracket yeah. with people who are big names today in technology and who were adults. Um, many of these people knew his work. Yeah, they knew him. They knew him on online as as it stood at the time. Yeah, but, as Aaron S.W., but they right. did not know that Aaron S.W. was 13. Right. They're like, Whoa, what? <laughs> Am I being punked? Yeah. Is that that that's a really dated reference that at this is. point, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Around 2000, they might have been saying it. Maybe. Okay. So uh, ask your parents. So he he ended up winning as a finalist a thousand dollars, and access to a web server for life, and a two day trip to MIT to meet a couple of uh, a couple of geeks, a couple of dudes who a were of fellow geeks, a little, yeah. little influential in technology. One of those two was Tim Berners Lee who most of us know as the guy who invented the World Wide Web uh, back when he was working with um, uh, CERN. 
Mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of a big deal. Yeah. So he's the one who kind of uh, developed the framework that would become the World Wide Web. And um, yeah, big name. The other fellow that he got to meet on this two-day trip was Hal Abelson, who was professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT. He's also a fellow of the uh, IEEE, or as longtime listeners of Tech Stuff know uh, how I pronounce it, the IEEE, because uh, it's Cajun. Oh um, not Cajun. And then he was also a uh, – Hal Abelson's also a founding director of Creative Commons and the Free Software Foundation, and Creative Commons will come into play later in this discussion, as will Abelson himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so big deal, you know. He got to meet some people who were definitely influential in the techno- technology space, as well as this idea that information is powerful and right. it's important and it's necessary, and people should have access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, these are these are big ideas for a thirteen-year-old, yeah. and he had embraced them already. Uh, a little bit later, he became interested in something called R. RSS, of course, being um, a rich site summary. I believe originally it stood for um, Resource Description Framework Site Summary. Oh, wow. Look at you. Yes, and that's exactly right. It's, a, it's some, sometimes also called Really Simple Syndication. And oh, you got it. You nailed it. <laughs> and yes. I can read really good. I wrote it down. You, read, um, <laughs> you, you do read really good. You don't speak so well, but you read really good. That's why I'm a podcaster, y'all. Okay, that's fair. Um, and uh, it's it's what it's what the internet uses to syndicate itself. Yeah, yeah. So so I'll give you guys a for those of you who are not aware of what RSS is or what it does. Uh, let's go back to the old days of the web. Now, pre RSS or pre any other syndication format, because RSS is not the only one. It's right. just it's sort of the one that came out on top. Sure. Uh, but pre RSS and other syndication formats, the way you would get information on the net is you would go visit a website. Yeah, you would you would type in the URL and you would click go and yep. you would visit the website. Right, and you would look and you you would actually scan the website to see if anything new had popped up. Mm-hmm. This applied for everything from. A uh, website that was about a specific company you were interested in, or a community. Blogs were kind of not a thing yet, but yeah, but, but, but web uh, web comics maybe, or or, or a news, news feed. site. Sure. Yeah, so you would you might think, oh, you know, I hadn't checked the news in a while. Let me go, and then you would go, and you would actually have to start kind of scanning through stuff and look. All right, well, what's what's new? What have I not read? Mm-hmm. And I, no, I I think I read that one. So <laughs> it was it was very time consuming. The idea behind the syndication was that instead of you going to these sites, the sites would send little bits of information to some sort of portal page, a reader. Some kind of aggregator. Yeah. Sure. Like Google Reader is a very popular one. You mm-hmm. might log into this reader program or reader site really is what it was. Uh, and then all that information would get fed to you whenever a new piece of information came in. And you could just look at a glance and see, oh, uh, this one website I'm interested in published a new article, and you could read the the headline and think, "Oh, well, is that something I want to look into more?" And depending upon the way they syndicated their feed, you might even be able to read the entire article within your reader mm-hmm. without having to ever, ever visit the site. Right? Sure. Uh, not a lot of websites like that because it meant that you could read their content without visiting the site, which often meant that they were not without getting, looking at their ads. Yeah, they or, weren't getting ad impressions. Yeah. So a lot of sites instead would allow like the first paragraph and a half. And then a click through. Yeah, sure. and then you would have to click through. But the the idea was all about making sure 
that uh, that you would be uh, getting the the latest information as you were as it was being generated, so that right. you didn't have to keep checking. Yeah, and around around 2001, a, a version of RSS called RSS 1.0 was being developed. Yeah, uh, yeah. The RSS originally was kind of being um, created by by essentially Netscape. Mm-hmm. So the Netscape group was working on RSS, and they came out with things like. RSS 0.9, which used uh, RDF elements, uh, which is that resource description framework that you were mentioning, Lauren. Mm-hmm. Um, that, by the way, it essentially is all about how links link to each other and the information between the links. It's a metadata issue. Um, it's kind of complicated, so it, and ultimately it doesn't matter because <laughs> they removed the RDF elements when they released RSS 0.91. Once they removed the RDF elements, they said, Oops. Oops, we our, need to rename this. Yes, our acronym no I longer guess. means RDF. <laughs> RDF, uh, uh, you know, uh, site syndication. We got to call it something else. And uh, that's when it became rich site syndication. Uh, and then, of course, eventually became really simple syndication. Um, or rich site summary, I should say, not syndication. Sorry. That's my brain is totally syndicated. <laughs> so anyway, Netscape releases 0.9 and 0.91. Uh, it becomes rich site summary, and then Netscape ends its development with the the standard. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the thing was, there were a lot of people who were saying mm, this was kind of a good idea, guys. Why are you? Why Why did we just put that down? Yeah, we kind of want that. So two different uh, entities, I guess, one person and one group began to work on developing RSS further. Uh, on one end, you had uh, the the RSS Dev Working Group, and on the other end, you had a fellow by the name of Dave Weiner. And uh, the they were independently working on creating and furthering the standard of RSS. Mm-hmm. Uh, Weiner attempted to trademark RSS, but uh, due to a, a, a clerical technicality, that trademark did not go through. Uh, the RSS Dev Working Group ended up publishing RSS 1.0, and that was uh, it, part of that working group. There were there were originally I think about twelve or fourteen people on it. Yeah, it was you know yeah basically the Hobbit party. Yeah, one of, one of those people was a fourteen year old Aaron Swartz. Yeah, so Aaron Swartz fourteen. He's working with people like people from the O'Reilly Media Group who were working on this set of standards. Uh, at 14 years old, he was one of the people helping define the standards of RSS 1.0. Uh, specifically, he was looking at creating some uh, semantic elements in RSS specification. Uh, semantic being that it would have a more, almost like a natural language recognition uh, okay. ability to it. It's it's really all about metadata, the data about mm-hmm. data and how that helps aggregate information in a way that's useful to human beings. Sure. So that, uh, you know, because computers don't understand the actual information that is that they handle, mm-hmm. right? So you have to create information about that information so computers can start to make associations. Can that, start filing it. Yeah. yeah. For humans, it's natural. For mm-hmm. computers, it takes yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> so that's kind of what he was building out was this whole um, a, a semantic element into it. That was kind of what he was specifically interested in. Meanwhile, uh, just to kind of wrap up the RSS stuff, um, Weiner would go on to develop RSS 2.0, 
which would take the place of RSS 1.0, even though it was not based on 1.0 at all. Oh, right, right. Because he was developing his separately. Simultaneously. Yeah, the, the, the development forked. And on one branch, you had 1.0, and the other branch, you had 2.0. And 2.0 ended up eventually taking over. Yeah, and so 1.0 wasn't really it, – it's still really impressive that they were creating it. And a lot of the work that, that Swartz especially did with metadata, he ended up taking other places. But. Yes, yeah. and But it, it's kind of important to bring that into perspective because I've seen a lot of reports that just say – he Aaron invented Schwartz. the RSS. Yes, he invented RSS, which one is not accurate, and two is certainly not accurate uh, once you go forward a couple of years when RSS 2.0 takes over. Right. But but he, his contributions were nonetheless important, and as you just pointed out, mm-hmm. they were applicable to other elements of technology, not just the RSS project. Right. So yeah, that was uh, that was his involvement in that at age fourteen. I will not tell you what I was up to when I was 14 <laughs> years old because none of it is even remotely as impressive as, yeah, as that yeah. one accomplishment. I'm pretty sure I was like watching Mystery Science Theater 3000 and playing Mario Kart. At 14, I was probably wishing there was something called Mystery Science Theater 3000. It happens to all of us. Because I'm old, <laughs> as Lauren has pointed out from the Star Wars discussion. I- one per episode. One per episode. So this is about the same time that uh, that Aaron Swartz made a made a big decision in his life. Yeah, he decided to drop out of high school that year. Yeah, that's um that's a bold decision for someone who is uh, you know, already showing so much promise. Uh, it's not not unusual in that I I've seen a lot of. Well, like, sure. Like I, trailblazers I mean, pro- drop out of school. Especially, yeah, pro- prodigies. I mean, uh, St- Stephen Hawking, I think, did terribly in primary school. Steve um, Jobs and Bill Gates both dropped out, but they dropped out of college. They oh, right. they, they completed high school, mm-hmm. but they dropped out of college. Well, you know, it's, um, I, I think that he – it sounds like Aaron had a lot of support from his family and that he was, you know, being encouraged to take on these crazy projects. So. Yeah, and it, it, I have a feeling he was also one of those people who the curriculum in a school just did not – match up to yeah. his to his I was pretty brain. bored in high school and I'm not that smart yeah. so you know I was also pretty bored in high school when we weren't talking about Shakespeare <laughs> when we were talking about Shakespeare I was very much engaged um, no I had some great teachers in high school please Aww. people if don't don't write me hate mail uh, <laughs> teachers um, so he also while not in high school taught himself how to code in Python. So that was kind of impressive. You know, mm-hmm. he, he decided that he needed to learn some more uh, coding language. Um, and uh, then he ended up meeting uh, a couple of uh, important people, including uh, Abelson again. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, Lawrence Lessig, who would become uh, sort of a mentor and friend to him throughout his life. And um, uh, Eric Eldridge. Eldred, rather. And they uh, they were they had just worked, banded together to create um, Creative Commons. Now, Creative Commons is a way of licensing and copywriting software that is not as restrictive as the uh, traditional copyright. Right. Because traditional copyright, uh, in the United States at least... Um, it's pretty much a one-zero. It's a yes-no kind of permission thing, wherein yeah. it's it's very possessive. And yeah, and it lasts forever. Mm-hmm. Well, not literally forever, but might as well be. Right. It's And it gets. it seems like every year there are more companies petitioning to lengthen the the era of copyright um, often you'll hear people talk about Disney being one of the big ones that right, they, you know, sure. they never want Mickey Mouse to pass out of copyright of course and uh, I mean 
from a from a business perspective, you can totally understand their point of view. Mm-hmm. From a creative perspective and someone who wants to be able to take other creative works and do something new with them, it's a very frustrating experience because you might have a great idea that would make someone else's great idea a superlative idea. All right. But you can't do it without the fear of being sued. And so – uh, what Lessig, Abelson, and Eldred wanted to do was create a form of licensing that would allow people who are creating works to choose how those works could be protected. Could be distributed and protected and remixed and Exactly. Yeah. So that way, like, if, if Lauren were to create something really awesome, but she says, you know, I know there are people out there who are going to look at this in ways I never imagined, and I want to see what comes of it, she could choose to license it under Creative Commons in such a way that other people could use that work, possibly with some restrictions. Some, And there were a lot of different options where you could do things like say, yes, you can use this work, but not in a commercial sense. Right, or sure. you can use this work, but you must attribute the original, the original creator. creator. Sure. So um, it gave a lot more flexibility. But they had a problem. While they were working out all the, the technical issues from the law side, mm-hmm. the, the legal issues, the policy issues, they weren't sure how to incorporate this on the actual technological side. Oh, right, because at the you know at, at the end of a text article, you can throw in a tag that says copyright this person, or you know you can you can use this work in these ways. But how do you do that on a music file? Right, how do you do that on a video file. without sure. without actually having it pop up as you know someone's like, y'all, this is, <laughs> this is Creative Commons, and it's, it's a song about my dog. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't want to do that at the beginning of every file, and so what. Uh, Aaron ended up doing was he began to work on code that would allow him to embed that information that again metadata again, metadata data about data. Uh, this code would be able to exist within a file and be readable and meaningful, so that when you were distributing this file, you would actually be able to see how it was distributed under the Creative Commons and make sure that it's following the right standards. So he played a very important part early on in the Creative Commons uh, world to make sure that it made sense from a technical perspective, technological perspective. And, um, yeah, huge influence on that. And, again, talking with people like Lessig and Abelson and Eldred gave him an even greater appreciation for this idea that information is important and right. people need it. So once more, reinforcing his own philosophy, which, again, he had already started to develop before he began to work on this project. Um, then uh, in 2001, <laughs> he co-wrote a paper with James Hendler, uh, who was a, a professor at the University of Maryland, uh, the paper was called The Semantic Web, A Network of Content for the Digital City. So this, again, is that idea of a web that is almost intelligent in a way, that it, mm-hmm. it, everything is mapped to everything else in such a way that associations are made very naturally. Uh, he ended up going to co-present this paper in Kyoto. So in 2001, yeah. So again, yeah, this is, this is when he was still 14. 14, 15, 14, somewhere 15. Right, on the, yeah. right, right around that age. Yeah, kind of crazy. And then... Um, uh, just to kind of illustrate his philosophy on licensing, he he had a very um, clever sense of humor, and he could he could word things in such a way where you get the meaning and you get the humor at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, he decided to uh, to summarize certain organizations' views on copyright in the form of haiku. And he was trying to explain what what these uh, different 
uh, approaches meant in a very simple way. So, for example, for the public domain, public domain meaning that it is not under copyright and anyone can access it right. uh, without fear of any, you know, legal repercussions. Exactly. Uh, it says, do what you feel like. Since the work is abandoned, the law doesn't care. Huh. That was haiku number one. Uh, MIT's approach. Take my code with you and do whatever you want, but please don't blame me. Huh. And then you have the RIAA. That's the, the Recording Association, Industry Association of America. This little litigious mm-hmm. group. Uh, you, you might have heard of them. Famously. Infamously. Was, uh, infamously opposed to... Uh, to digital distribution or at least digital, digital distribution without some form of really restrictive yeah. DRM. Yeah, they really wanted everything to run off of DRM. Yeah. Uh, anyway, RIAA, they're also infamously uh, known for getting involved in policy decisions, mm-hmm. you know, advocating for policy decisions. Uh, his take on their approach is, if you touch this file, my lawyers will come kill you, so kindly refrain. Ouch. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good moment to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So we're going to skip ahead uh, to when he was the ripe old age of 17. That's when he began to work on a project called Infogami. Mm-hmm. This was a wiki platform. Yep. And it eventually merged with another company that has gone on to uh, to some acclaim. Uh-huh. You, you might have heard of it. It's called Reddit. Yep. Reddit. Uh, I know some people who think of Reddit as really, it really is at their front page to the internet. Yeah. You know, because Reddit, of course, divides things up into categories and then subcategories or Reddits and subreddits, if you prefer. Mm-hmm. And you can read all about these different uh, headlines that are coming out all across the web from all sorts of different sources. You can vote up or vote down stories so that uh, the ones that you think are particularly well-written or pertinent are at the top, and ones that are not applicable or whatever get voted down. So it is a free-flowing sharing of information. Yeah. Uh, And ideally, it works really well, although depending upon which Reddit Ah, commenter you you read. Little bits and pieces of it can be wretched hives of scum and villainy. Right. And some some subreddit communities are fantastic. Absolutely. And then some subreddit communities just are filled with flame wars. Um, And it happens. But anyway, so he was was technically... He was a co-creator. A co-creator of Reddit. Yeah. Yeah. So, So Reddit as a company existed before Aaron came on board because the companies merged. But it wasn't... It wasn't what it is. It wasn't today. what it is today. The Reddit that we know. Yeah, exactly. So he ended up uh, creating it uh, a, a special kind of web development library uh, that they ended up switching to. They had it a, a previous one. They switched to the one that Swartz creates, and then the site kind of took off. And in fact, was purchased by Condé Nast. And uh, that purchase, that deal, ended up making Aaron. Wealthy overnight. Extremely wealthy, yeah. Um, and, you know, the the entire Reddit team was moved into Wired's offices. Wired is owned by Condé Nast. Yep, Wired's offices in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, because before that, he had been working in other parts of California, which um, he preferred. Uh, he was not a fan of San Francisco. He was not really a fan of the Wired offices or of the or, entire... He didn't like the job. Mm-hmm. Like... I have a feeling that any time Swartz encountered constraints, he became frustrated. Sure. And the more constrained he was, 
the more frustrated he would become. And uh, one of the other elements of Swartz's life, and it's a it's a tragic element, is that he was uh, he he battled depression. Yeah. And that in this environment where he was coming up against all these constraints that he did not like, uh, depression was starting to get to him. Yeah. Um, He uh, wrote a story, a, a fictional story, but people began to question how fictional it was that mm-hmm. that uh, pe- some people began to interpret as a potential a suicide note right. yeah a plea for help and people began to check on him and um he then was essentially asked to resign and or fired depending upon the yeah, report depending on the right the terminology you really want to use either way the it was it was clear that his his uh his, his happiness was not going to come into play while he was working there. Right. Uh, he was not contributing to the company in the way that they wanted. And uh, no party in that relationship was, was happy. Absolutely. Yeah. So he ended up leaving uh, Reddit. Uh, but but that was probably for the best because, again, it was just clear that it was not a good fit. Um, and in 2007, he ended up joining uh, the Internet Archive Project and launched a project called Open Library. Now, Open Library, it, essentially it creates a web page for every book that's within the database of various libraries and research facilities and other organizations. Mm-hmm. It takes the metadata about those books mm-hmm. and creates a web page based on the metadata. So you're not getting necessarily the content, the content of the book. But you're getting it the information catalog, about the book. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so so it's a, a useful tool, and uh, it also allows anyone to add to that tool, to the Open Library Project, which, again, it's involving metadata, it's involving sharing information. We're mm-hmm. starting to see a real theme develop with, yeah. with Aaron's yeah. life and his work. He, he also, at that point, um, n- not quite with permission, posted all of the book cataloging data kept by the Library of Congress to Open Library. And yeah, this, this is another theme that goes on frequently in Aaron's life of, of just, just small, I mean, okay, not even small, because that's kind of big, big activism, big, peaceful, informational activism. Yeah. Yeah, he he would take initiative. Let's, yeah, let's put it that yeah. way. That taking initiative is going to become a theme very quickly, too. Absolutely. And in 2008, in fact, he, he wrote uh, what he called the Guerrilla Open Access Manifesto. And this was... This, this this really kind of kicked off his um, his public persona, I think, mm-hmm. of of being that kind of activist. Uh, there's a great quote from it that I want to read w- real quick. Um, he said, "It's called stealing or piracy, as if sharing a wealth of knowledge were the moral equivalent of plundering a ship and murdering its crew. But sharing isn't immoral; it's a moral imperative. Only those blinded by greed would refuse to let a friend make a copy." Hmm. Interesting. And then moving on from that, in uh, the same year, in 2008, uh, he got involved in a little kerfuffle. Huh. Uh, all right. So so to explain the kerfuffle, we have to talk about the PACER system. That's the Public Access to Court Electronic Record System. Yep. And it's essentially a government-run database. And it's mostly court filings. So it's all the stuff that happens in uh, open court. Mm-hmm. And... By by definition, they are uncopyrightable. They are public access. Yes. But, yes, because these these are you know the government cannot copyright information. You know it's not allowed mm-hmm. to. It's the same reason why if you go 
look at uh, information that was generated by NASA, mm-hmm. it's not protected by copyright. Right. Um, so same sort of thing here. Uh, but the the database, what it was doing was it's trying to solve a problem. You've got so much information that it's very difficult to track down specific files in a physical filing system. And also it generates a huge amount of material that you have to create physical space for sure. to store it. Mm-hmm. So PACER was the idea of let's create an electronic system, one, that will cut down on the amount of space we need to store all these mm-hmm. files, and two, it will make it way easier to find stuff. Uh-huh. Sure, sure. Uh, in order to do that, however, I mean, because, you know, to, to, to run the servers, to do all of that uploading, it was charging at the time an $0.08 cent per page fee. Yeah to access all of this information. Um, and, and that was, I mean, that was mostly for giant law firms or corporations that were downloading large amounts of that data. Right, thousands if you were, of pages. If you were an individual, you could get something for, for, for a couple bucks or for, or for free, free sometimes. For yeah. free frequently. Yeah, um, you were limited as an individual to how many times you could get uh, court files within a certain span of time. Sure. So... For example, every three months or four months, you might be able to download five files. Mm -hmm. But then you would have to wait to download more. Or pay. Or or pay. Right, Mm -hmm. exactly. And uh, and Swartz's philosophy was that why should you be forced to pay for something that should be publicly accessible? It is is the... Public, it's public access. Domain. It should be right. Right. Yeah. So, so if it's you know if it's not under copyright, then why? Then is why it, are we paying for yeah. it? Yeah. So Pacer kind of responded to criticisms about this database and began to create a pilot program, and allowed seventeen libraries in the United States free access to the database. So mm-hmm. anyone could download as many documents within Pacer. Out As of they one wanted of these from those libraries, yeah. yeah. So Aaron decided that he he had a clever idea. He was like, well, yeah. so. Well, I can get as many of these for free as possible. And then, because they're not under copyright, I can upload them to a free database, mm-hmm. which anyone can access at any time for absolutely free, Because and no one can come after me because mm-hmm. they're and if I just, uncopyrightable files. And if I just write a script to do that for me, that's much faster yeah, than doing it Yeah, that way I don't have to sit there and, and Click cre- through each one. set up the little, mm-hmm. uh, the little uh, uh, ducking birdie thing that Homer Simpson used to click <laughs> yes over and over again when he when he had that takeover for his job um it's a great episode uh, but yeah no he, he created a script that would automatically and continuously download these files um he downloaded almost 20 million pages of text or yeah. about 20 percent uh-huh. of the pacer database it's about 1.5 million dollars worth if you're going by that eight cents a page right, right. thing which you know again you can debate on what the actual value is but anyway sure, he, but... he downloaded all of this and uh once once it hit around that that much someone over at pacer said whoa hey. something something funky is going down something's wrong someone is downloading all of it yeah and whether or not they thought that it was an attack or maybe the system itself was just malfunctioning mm-hmm. they decided to uh to pull the plug yeah. and both on the servers literally they they shut the servers down at first so that the the they would no longer be serving up the information and then they canceled the program though with the libraries they canceled that the that free pilot access. program sure and um then they uh, they were not – they also had to deal with a, a nasty PR problem because the documents that, that Swartz got showed that the PACER system was not good at 
eliminating personal data out of court files. Mm-hmm. So this is data that should be that should be private and secret. And yeah, it should be anonymous. It should be protected. Yeah. Right. So the 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 court filings themselves are not necessarily anonymous, but the personal data about the people in them should, should be. be. Yeah. So uh, it it began to raise some questions about the pacer system, and uh, some critics said, you know, technologically. We should not have this problem. Uh, we are at a place now where this system should be way better than what it is. And so it kind of gave the government a black eye. Some people uh, have uh, said that perhaps this gave the United States government, or at least certain agencies within the government, the um, the inspiration to look more closely into Aaron Swartz and his yes. activities. Yes. Supposedly the FBI at that point created a profile on him. Yeah, which which Swartz said he got hold of and found uh, entertaining. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was – so some would argue that this kind of created a grudge uh, against Swartz on, the, on behalf of the government and that perhaps some of the other things that unfold were – part of that. I, would not, I personally yeah. wouldn't go so far as to say that, uh, but then I'm not intimate with all the details either. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then let's let's move ahead. In 2008, he became part of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. He was one of the original members. Uh, this was a campaign committee. It was really about uh, campaign financing uh, reforms, mm-hmm. trying to do things like eliminate corporate uh contributions during election campaigns and to just limit political contributions in general from corporations saying that, well, one of the things they suggested was, why don't you hold it up to a vote from shareholders mm-hmm. whether or not you, wow. you yeah. contribute to a particular political candidate? Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of stuff. Uh, he was definitely very opinionated on that subject. Uh, also, in case you're curious, I mean, just for full information, uh, this committee mostly backs progressive Democrats. Yes. That's not to say that there aren't progressive Republicans. There are. Mm-hmm. There are progressive conservatives and progressive liberals. But in particular, this, partic- this, this specific committee, yes. the specific committee tends to lean Democrat. Um, so just in the full, full disclosure, full disclosure information there. Uh, and in 2010, uh, Swartz, <laughs> Swartz was not afraid of, uh, of, of poking the bear. As it turns out. And, and he was also very, again, very passionate about information. And uh, uh, he proved it again in 2010 when he filed a Freedom of Information Act request to learn about how Bradley Manning was being treated in U.S. custody. Wow. Uh, and if you aren't familiar with the story of Bradley Manning, Bradley Manning was a U.S. Army soldier. Uh, private, actually, who gained access to some uh, some pretty high-level security clearance information within the uh, the military mm-hmm. and leaked it to WikiLeaks. Uh, so when you heard about all those cables right. from a few years ago, thousands and thousands of, of uh, communication cables that were leaked to WikiLeaks, a lot of that was traced back to Bradley Manning. And Manning has been held in confinement uh, awaiting trial. Uh, the trial is supposed to take place this year, 2013, in mm-hmm. June. Um, but for a long time, he was being held and the Marine Corps brig in Quantico, Virginia, which was similar to being held in solitary confinement. Right. Uh, his conditions were uncomfortable, to say the least. He was, by many reports, uh, he was in a cell where he was unable to see any other 
uh, prisoner within those cells. Mm-hmm. They could hear each other, but they could not see each other. Um, supposedly, he was not allowed to sleep between the hours of 5 a.m. and 8 p.m. at all. Wow. Um, and then uh, he was only allowed out of his cell to take a, a walk for one hour. The rest of the time he was in his cell, um, his, uh, his cell had, uh, I think, no window. I think it had a sink, a toilet, and a bed. Mm-hmm. And the bed had a mattress that had a pillow incorporated in the mattress. <laughs> wow. And that when Manning uh, made a comment about the only way he could hurt himself, they, they essentially started to take away all his clothing as well, according to the reports I read. Uh, when he made a, a comment saying that uh, the only way he could possibly hurt himself at this point would be with his flip-flops or underwear, those were taken away as well. So this is the reason why uh, Swartz was sending in this Freedom of Information Act request. He, he felt that, one, that what Manning had done possibly was not as big a crime as everyone was making it out to be. And certainly right. he did not deserve this sort of treatment before he had even gone to trial. Certainly. Um, so uh, Manning, for his part, by the way, was uh, pleading not guilty. So mm-hmm. to be treated this way, uh, Swartz, I'm sure, felt passionately was... Completely wrong. Completely, yes. Um, And I should also rush to add, this is all based on what I've read (laughs) about how how Manning was treated. Right, right. So, again, I wasn't there, and it could be that he was treated completely fairly, and this information has Mm -hmm. been fabricated for some reason. But this this was the information that was out there at the time. Yeah. Or that is out there now. Uh, Right. And then, um, ultimately, he was, uh, Manning was moved to the Midwest Joint Regional Correctional Facility, which was uh, a relatively new facility. And from what I understand, his uh, uh, the cell that he is in is much improved over the one he was in in Quantico. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that was another thing Swartz got involved in. And uh, again, some conspiracy theorists suggest that that the the government the grudge that the government had back in the Pacer situation was up to mega grudge mm-hmm. after this uh, this request. Although Swartz was not the only person in the world to ask for this information, right? Absolutely. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't really buy into that. Uh, skipping ahead just a little bit, we're going to backtrack in a second. But he was also Swartz was also a, a, an advocate uh, against the SOPA campaign, the, the Stop on- Online Piracy Act. Yep. Uh, in 2011, that was proposed. Yeah. Uh, the the general idea behind this act was that a lot of the stuff, a lot of the computers that host the files that violate intellectual property rights of companies and, and people within the United States, a lot of those computers exist in countries outside the U.S. jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And so how do you end, how do you stop those sites from distributing illegal copies of stuff within the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, SOPA's approach was to break links to those sites, essentially to remove those sites from domain name servers here in the United States Mm -hmm. so that if you were to try and navigate to one of those sites, you would get an error. Right. Uh, Essentially, you would get redirected to the FBI uh, homepage, which would, in theory, scare you. Enough to stop. Yeah, yeah. to stop looking for ways to do it. There were definitely workarounds to this. um, And... A lot of people protested SOPA because they said that, one, it would not stop pirates from pirating because they could find ways around it, Mm -hmm. and two, it could break the Internet in unintended ways. Right. Uh, I think Swartz was more of – he more of information wants to be free. Right. Uh, Not so much like it'll break the Internet or 
we can get around this, but more like more of it's wrong to shut down information where right. information exists. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, but he was definitely on the, the anti SOPA yeah. side and he gave a very eloquent speech when uh, SOPA failed to pass. Yes. And um, and really was passionate about telling people don't rest because this idea is not a not a new idea. It's something mm-hmm. that's been tried multiple times, and it will, it will be tried again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, but that that leads us to to the I guess the last part of this this saga, the mm-hmm. the story about JSTOR, which actually started back in November of 2010. Yeah. So this predates the SOPA stuff, but it kind of it, it envelops it. Uh, JSTOR. The company essentially it stands for journal storage. Oh, right, and it's a it's a library of publicly funded academic articles. Yeah, so we're talking again about scholarly information. So this is kind of similar to the the uh, the the information that was in Pacer. Of course, that was court filings, not mm-hmm. scholar scholarship. But in this case, we're talking about uh, academic journals, books. And papers that are from primary sources. These are the people um, who are doing the, the research. The scientific research, medical research, all kinds of really terrific stuff is in JSTOR. Yeah. Essentially, all the blogs you read are based off of the academic papers mm-hmm. that are stored in databases like JSTOR. Mm-hmm. And uh, JSTOR has about, well, a little bit over 1,400 journal titles and more than 50 disciplines are represented in JSTOR's database. And... Um, it, it was the whole purpose of JSTOR. Well, first, it was founded by William J. G. Bowen, or Bowen, who was president of uh, Princeton University. Mm-hmm. And it was, again, trying to solve that same problem that Pacer was trying to solve. How do you make this vast amount of academic information searchable and feasible to store? Because right. it takes up so much space. Libraries were having trouble storing all this stuff. Oh, of course. Uh, so JSTOR was kind of the solution. And most of the stuff, not all of it, like anything that's uh, in the public domain is publicly accessible through JSTOR. But anything that's currently under, you know, the copyright or whatever, you have to, uh-huh. you have to pay to you access have to pay it's behind it, sure. a paywall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and again, Swartz, uh, Swartz didn't necessarily think that it needed to be behind a paywall. Yeah. Um, or Not that it so needed, much. or that it needed to just exist, uh, uh, on JSTOR. And, uh, and there's some arguments about exactly what he did, but essentially he got access to a computer at MIT, which was fine. He had, he had authorization to access oh, computers. Right, at right. MIT. He, he was currently a fellow at the, um, Center for Ethics at Harvard. Yeah. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah. <laughs> Which some people would say is ironic. Yes. Uh, but yeah, he, he got access to a computer at MIT, um, and he began to use, uh, again, another kind of algorithm to start downloading documents from JSTOR. I, I think it was a Python script, actually, which you had mentioned that yeah. he learned he had way learned back when. when he dropped so. out of high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Relying on that Python knowledge, uh, and not the Monty kind. Um, he managed to download around 4 million journals out of JSTOR. And uh, JSTOR was able to identify that it was Swartz and essentially confronted him with this. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Swartz and JSTOR ended up settling this this dispute out of court. Uh, and Swartz actually handed over the information he had downloaded from mm-hmm. JSTOR. And JSTOR, for its part, essentially said, all right, we're cool. Yeah. You know what? We don't agree with what you did, but we understand why you did it. And you mm-hmm. returned everything. So we're, everything's cool. And it could have ended right then and there. Sure. But. But, um, well, people people argue a little bit about what role MIT has had in all of this. And yeah. some people say that the administration there really 
cracked down unnecessarily hard on him. And, and a lot of I, th- I think a lot of alumni have come out saying like, well, in my day, you know, earlier in the 1970s at MIT, if someone had had hacked our system and started downloading this amount of information from such a terrific database as JSTOR, we would have. We would have congratulated them. We would have given given them a, a, a certificate and right. and, and a Give startup. Them a little parade. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and there's some who say that MIT did not actively pursue a, a case against mm-hmm. Swartz, but, but also they, did not yeah. discourage and one. And they did certainly call the cops on him. Yeah. So so that's when the government gets involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, the government essentially charges Swartz with thirteen. Ultimately, it was thirteen criminal court. Uh, criminal counts, mm-hmm. which included things like uh, wire fraud, computer fraud, theft of information, theft of information, this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, he was released on a hundred thousand dollars bail. The charges, depending upon the accounts you read, could have resulted in him serving a prison sentence of between thirty and fifty years at max. Um, yeah, I, many of many of the accounts I say see say thirty five. I've seen thirty five. It's the biggest. Several well. Right. Yeah, there was one, I think, CNN article that said 50. And I'm like, I, I think that people are adding them up in different ways. Yeah. Uh, but, but, um, and this is all under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Yep. And, uh, he also would have faced up to maybe as much as $4 million in fines. Uh, now, it's far more likely that the government would have ended up reducing that to just six months. Right. The prosecutors say that, yeah, it would have been, they, they, they were offering a, um, a, a plea based on the fact that there was no personal gain intended right. from Aaron's actions. Right. And um, so some have said that the government was essentially using Swartz as an example to mm-hmm. scare the heck out of any other, anyone else who would want to try something similar. So you could kind of compare this to stories about cases where people who downloaded some music files ended up getting uh, – pulled into a court case where the fine would have been, you know, an astronomical amount. A billion like, dollars. Yeah, or like five thousand yeah. dollars per song or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And it, it's a similar situation in that sense. It could have been that, you know, the the whole goal here was not so much to punish Schwartz into next century, but rather to act as a deterrent for anyone else to right. scare people. Which right. by the way Government and everybody else, that rarely works. <laughs> uh, more often than not, you get people more angry. And Way more worked up than they, they would have been before. terrible things. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that you aren't, you know, you don't have a right to act on things that are against the law. I'm just saying, think about the way you do it because you could end up making a worse enemy for yourself. Right, right. Um, you might find a better way of working around it is my point. So, uh, again, not saying that they're in the wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. Swartz was in the wrong, but, uh, sure, but sure. how much he was in the wrong was another question. Yeah. So and and in in this case, uh, um, in a, again, like like we said at the beginning of the podcast, and like I'm sure that you have heard on the news, on January 11th of 2013, uh, Swartz was found dead in his apartment. Yeah. Uh, he had he had apparently committed suicide, uh, and um, uh, you know there have been a lot of people raising suggestions about what it was that specifically led to his decision to end his life. And again, because we are not Aaron, we can't we can't really be know sure. what led to it. Um, his family has come out as as being very very passionately saying that it was because of this persecution. Yeah, that he was feeling a, a huge amount of stress and that again his depression was something that was uh was was 
really plaguing him at that mm-hmm. time. Uh, that, and you can sort of imagine that if you are this person who has this idealistic view of how the world should be, and then you start to encounter so much, so much persecution and resistance to, to your dream where you, you know, you, you can see in your mind, you think there, there's this idealistic world we could be living in mm-hmm. and it would be so easy, but I'm, I'm hitting resistance all the way. And every time I try and make a change, I get, 10 more obstacles in my way. You can kind of see where that sort of hopelessness could creep in if, if that was, you know, in fact what Aaron was thinking. And again, this is just kind of guesswork. It's all, it's all speculation. And, and, you know, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office of, uh, it's Carmen Ortz's, in fact, office. She's the U.S. Attorney of Massachusetts has said that, um, that, that their office's contact, uh, conduct was not, in fact, inappropriate. Yeah. They, they, they have maintained that what everything they did was uh, well within the the limits of the law and in ethics. Right. Which, because again, just because something's legal doesn't mean it's ethical. Yeah. Uh, and vice versa. Yeah. There's there's been there's been a huge pushback against her office. There's a WhiteHouse.gov petition out right now as of as of late January 2013 with over 46,000 signatures to remove her from office. Yeah. And there's been a lot of outcry on the internet uh, on behalf of Swartz. There's also been some resistance. Uh, some people who have criticized Swartz and his his ideals. I've seen some of that. There have been some hackers who have kind of uh, made, you know, they've defaced some memorials online. Wow. You know, it's it's a complex thing. Some sometimes you could argue that you know maybe the hackers really do feel that Swartz was not the person that other people are making him out to mm-hmm. be. In other cases, I think you know it could just be you know making a play for attention. For because, attention, sure. Yeah, you know, this is a high profile yeah. uh, instance. On, so. the, on the flip side, uh, MIT's website has been hacked twice since Swartz's suicide. Once by anonymous, who also threatened action against the Westboro Baptist Church when they announced that they would picket Swartz's funeral, which they backed off of. Yep, they Huzzah. did not. They did not uh, show up. Yeah, uh, yeah. And again, when we say that anonymous does something, keep in mind that's you know that's a group that has no real. Uh, well, there's there's no real structure to it. So sure. sometimes members of Anonymous may huh. act. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. It's always hard to say that Anonymous did anything because it could just be <laughs> a group of people. It could be one person. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yes, uh, they did definitely send out a message uh, saying that if if the WBC showed up at Swartz's funeral, they would block them from uh, from view mm-hmm. of the, the grieving parties. Yeah. Um, and probably there was a little bit more of a threat there too, because anonymous <laughs> has been known to make people's lives difficult if very they, difficult, yes. If they oppose the ideals that the group uh, follows, yeah. Um, in in slightly slightly more positive uh, uh, action, Representative Zoe Lofgren of California wants to propose Aaron's Law, which would be a bill to amend the CFAA. Yep. And uh, uh, you know, ch- change it so that so that these. Violations of terms of service and network use um, cannot be federally prosecuted unless they really should be. Right. It's it's it's, the, the it's a complex issue, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is that was part of the the whole uh, argument in the whole Creative Commons approach was that it's not necessarily that one party is absolutely in the wrong or absolutely in the right. It is a complex issue, and so it's one of those things where you know you don't want to paint with a wide brush and then find out that, oh, you know, we need to 
take a much more precise approach to this. Right. Um, and also, you know, a lot of luminaries – Technology luminaries have come out and spoken on this subject. Lawrence Lessig have, has said several things about uh, – he's criticized the prosecution's mm-hmm. approach to uh, going after Swartz. And uh, Tim Berners-Lee wrote a very poignant tweet. Really gorgeous tweet. Yeah. yeah if, if I can – I'm, I'm probably going to tear up in the middle of this tweet. And if I don't, it's going to be a miracle. But he, he tweeted, um, Aaron dead, world wanderers, we have lost a wise elder. Hackers for right, we are one down. Parents all, we have lost a child. Let us weep. I'm yeah. like, oh, Tim Berners Lee, what are you doing to me? Yeah, he's uh, uh. yeah, he definitely definitely summed it up uh, really well for a lot of people. Um, shortly after after uh, the discovery that Swartz had committed suicide, uh, I appeared on an episode of Tech News Today, and we discussed the 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 story and. Uh, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a tough discussion even then. And that was fresh after mm-hmm. finding out about it. Sure. Um, and it has not become easier as time has gone on. Also, uh, over at MIT, uh, for MIT's part, they decided to create a, a review panel to look into how MIT handled the whole situation mm-hmm. and whether or not, uh, the, the people at MIT as a whole behaved in a way that is up to MIT's standards. Right. And the man who was put in charge of this review panel is Hal Abelson, who, mm-hmm. again, was one of those two men, the other being Tim Berners-Lee. Back when he was 13. When he was 13, he got to meet. Yeah. Uh, and also a man who worked with him on the Creative Commons project. So yeah. uh, Abelson definitely has um, firsthand knowledge of Swartz and, and his contributions to the world. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, uh, he wrote a very eloquent letter to MIT and said, you know, what his intentions were as part of this review process and say that he wants to take a very honest look. He does not want it to become a witch hunt. At the same time, he does not want to just cover up anything that might be an ugly source spot for MIT. He wants the truth. Right. And he says that, you know, really that's the only thing that will serve in this situation. And it's yeah. the only thing that, that is appropriate considering the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and uh, and it's it, while we don't know all the details about what led Swartz to make this decision, we do know that uh, he had battled depression. He had a history of it, you know, and it's a it, it's kind of a lifelong lifelong issue. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Without uh, Jonathan and I wanted to say without making this too much of an after school special, you know, it's it's depression is something that both of us have dealt with in our lives, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's 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 rough and it's terrible. But um, but to borrow a phrase, it gets better. Yeah. And, you know, so. If and, and there's help out there. There is help out there. If you are ever feeling overwhelmed, please, please talk to someone. There are people who care about you. We care about you. You probably shouldn't talk to us because we are not mental health professionals. Yeah. But um, uh, honestly, Googling suicide prevention is the best way to find help in your area. But if you're in the U.S., you can also call 1-800-273-8255. It's it's free and confidential, and they will absolutely hook you up with help. So yeah, it's it's definitely something that you know we want to leave you guys with because, like Lauren said, this is not this is not an unfamiliar subject to us, and uh, and it can when you're in the middle of a depression, it can feel like there's nowhere to turn, mm-hmm. and and the truth is that's that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, let's let's wrap this up, guys. Uh, if you would like to hear about a particular subject, if there's someone that we should cover or a particular technology that you really want to know more about, 
I highly recommend you get in touch with us and let us know. You can write us an email. Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com. Or you can send us a message on Twitter or Facebook. Our handle at both those locations is techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 